Spirits, are you out there? Are you watching an anime movie? That's right, you better be, because today we talk Ouija, Origin of Evil. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the latest horror movie in this year's Halloween lineup. Um, Ouija, Origin of Evil, and we have Dimitri Panos, the horror buff of Anatomy of a Movie. Hey, hey, movie fans, and horror movie fans in particular. That's right, and a newcomer to Anatomy of a Movie, but someone who uh, who actually does like the horror genre quite a bit, I would yes. say. Yes, big, big fan of horror. We have Brianna Phipps. Hi, everybody. And I'm Phil Svitek. Welcome to Anatomy Movie. If this is your first time joining us, we break down the movie. We talk about both story and production and various things um, and try to make it ultimately as educational as we can. Uh, that being said, it's very much spoiler-filled, so you've been warned if you don't care. Uh, you've been warned if you've seen the movie. Great! You can follow along. Uh, speaking of following <laughs> along, we have our rundown. So if you go to the description box, you can download the rundown and follow along with us. See all of our notes and various things. So that way, um, you know, you, uh, a lot of times we'll talk about the quotes and things like that. But this kind of fleshes it out um, of what we supplement and talk about on air. And some of the po- bullet points that we don't always quite get to just because of discussion. Sure. Um, and if you're returning, welcome back! <laughs> Uh, but as always, let's start with quick thoughts, starting with you, Dimitri. Well, you know, uh, Phil, you know, and I have it in writing. When, when it came out that we were going to be doing Ouija uh, Origin of Evil, uh, I had written you and said, you know, I think I'm up for this one. I only saw the first one um, b- because Olivia Cook was in it. And a uh, big fan of Olivia Cook, uh, who's in Bates Motel, and wanted to see her... You know, I, I I like the fact that she was going to be in this horror movie, Ouija. And then I saw the movie, and the movie, no offense and no fault of Olivia Cook, but the movie sucked. <laughs> I mean, it was just bad. And when I found out that they were making a sequel to this bad movie, I was like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way. This go, is the origin of evil. Yeah. Don't you want to know what, like, the origin of evil? Yeah. At, at my knee-jerk reaction, it was the origin of the craptacular. Uh, so I was out. I was like going, and then through conversation, and I noticed on Rotten Tomatoes, and then it just came to a little bit of self-awareness. Uh, Who the hell am I? <laughs> like, okay, so the first one sucked. I like the horror movie genre. I shouldn't be such a jerk about it or a snob about it. Um Wanted to fill out the panel, wanted to do my part, and surprisingly, at scene two in Rotten Tomatoes, it was like 80%. I had a conversation about someone who said, oh my god, the movie's getting good reviews. And then I found out that the director of this movie, Michael Flanagan, directed a horror movie that came out around the same time as Ouija called Oculus, which I really liked a lot. And so, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. It's got, I'm gonna it's got go the bullet points for for selling you. Um, these are in a quick. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, you know, I went out and I saw this movie, and I have to say, I was very pleasantly surprised at what Ouija accomplished. And I only feel bad that it followed that first shitty film because it did it no justice. Like this should have been that movie. That should have been the first movie. And I think. It is in large part due to this director, Michael Flanagan, who is from Salem, Massachusetts. 
So nice. go go New Englander from 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 Peabody. Uh, my dad owns a business in Salem, Mass. So you go, Mike. Um, but I, you know, his throwback style of filmmaking uh, was amazing in this picture. I.e., what that literally real change cues in a digital picture that like floored me stuff like that um his technique using the diopter split focus you know and then he and his uh, writing collaborator jeff howard they didn't necessarily rely on sequel tropes or prequel tropes so to speak and they didn't 100 percent rely on dopey horror tro- tropes to deliver well it may not be the most scariest movie this year but they delivered a movie that has halloween creep scares um and while cliche does exist in this movie, I never guffawed at what would have come up because I was already entrenched in this movie as to what it built up. So I forgave its cliches. And, you know, in all honesty, uh, had had this gone into anybody else's hands, I don't think it would have turned out as well as it did. So for me, Ouija, and as a horror fan, I think Ouija Origin of Evil was a very pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. All right. And what about you, Brianna? Um, I really liked the film. I, unlike you, had no idea that it was supposed to be a sequel prequel to Ouija. Um, I saw the trailer first, and I never would have made that connection at all. Uh, and even watching the film, I don't make that connection besides the fact that there's a Ouija board in both films that they are related in any kind of way. Um, but I really wasn't... I enjoyed watching it. I had a good time. It was fun. It was lighthearted at times. There was those kind of scare moments, but more just the creepy overtone, which I enjoy. Um, it didn't feel like cheap at all to me. Like that, like kind of like mm-hmm. sometimes horror films do that, like cheap tricks and stuff to kind of scare you. Uh, that wasn't what I got from this film. So I really enjoyed myself. I just had a fun time watching it. Yeah, I agree. It did earn its scares. Mm. Yeah, I felt very much. Yeah, you know, um, Lights Out this year was one of the more original horror movies for me, and I enjoyed that uh, because it seemed like to know horror, really. And here, I, I appreciate the fact now through research that they did try to really study horror and stick away from the cliches and try to invent something new. Um, and I think it blends the two well. I think there's enough originality, but also throwbacks to what horror has always been um, that, that I can appreciate it. And um, very, I think overall in general, the three women uh, just did so well and uh, fully fleshed out characters. Um, and and I, I really appreciated that. And overall, I thought it was a very good movie. Um, the ending kind of, it was in, because I knew the, the, the original. I didn't see it, but I knew kind of where that was going. I felt it was a little bit too forced to play into that sequel that oh, whatever prequel but it's sequel <laughs> sure god damn these prequel sequels yeah. <laughs> um you know and 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 so i i i felt it, it got a little loose there um when it could have been a little bit tighter if it didn't have to service that um but other than that yeah i, I thought it was a good movie and worth checking out um especially when there's not a lot of horror movies out there right now no and <clears throat> Again, I think that this movie uh, is a disservice that it followed that Ouija movie. And to your point, though, I think that you know any good horror movie, any horror movie worth its weight in salt, um, 
is because you care for the characters. Okay. And I I did the the, the casting I thought was was fantastic. Uh, I thought the the, the 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 woman who played the mother was I, I loved her. Uh, the two girls I thought were very good. I thought casting all around um, was really good, but they were incorporated in a story that I actually ended. I cared for these people, so you know, I cared that they were scared for their lives or had the potential of being possessed. So, and to that again, I do give uh, Michael Flanagan uh, props because. I think he is a, a, well, he likes the genre, and I believe he's a student of not only using technique that, that people like Hitchcock or, or Brian De Palma or even Orson Welles and Spielberg and Quentin Tarantino have used, but I also am going to throw in, I think he could potentially be, you know, he, he also pays attention to what James Wan is able to bring from a directing standpoint into the horror genre, which is breathe new life. Make it look special. Don't make it look like a shtick or a gimmick, but make it so that you draw the audience in. Horror is, great horror is great manipulation of, of an audience. Like, how are we going to get to this scare? How are we going to do it? And uh, I, I think that Flanagan and his crew were able to really pull that in very well from a technical standpoint, but his directing chops and directing the children, too. He gets really good performances out of his kids, mm-hmm. okay? Or especially. Yeah, especially. That's, that's a lot to put on a young girl. It's a lot to put on. Agreed, 100%. And, you know, I do honestly believe that this, this Flanagan guy, he's got the chops. Like, I want to see more of his stuff. And he's able to go into... Take this project, which was a sequel prequel to, to a movie that, albeit opened up, up at number one, it was pretty crappy. And even if you look at Rotten Tomato scores, like that really fell on cliche. Mm-hmm. Like it's what I dislike about a lot, a lot of horror movies. He elevated it, and I was like, God, if only this were that first movie, yeah. I'd be like, Holy cow! This, this, this is a. This, this could be like another insidious mm-hmm. kind of like because those movies that that James Wan did at least the first two um, going into the third but that's a that's a good series this would have been a great jumping off point I, and, and it'll be interesting how, how they could do it if they wanted to you know go that direction um, I want to talk about this is uh, in, in our rundown we have this a little bit later but I do want to talk about it the history and origin of Ouija boards yes because to me my history and origin of Ouija boards has always been pathetic like we'd always try to build <laughs> it and it never worked but, but obviously yours movie- didn't work no I mean mine worked I don't know if it was but still that question up in the air with Ouija boards like oh, the only is way it working moved. or is it someone's pushing it and we're just all believing that it's moving like we always use that on a tilted table, so we couldn't <laughs> figure it out. Now, I really, I, I, I can tell you, too, from, I am not going near a Ouija board. I've got no reason to right now. You're not supporting Hasbro <laughs> and buying one? No, no, no. But you are, but, it, you, but it, the history of the Ouija board goes back all the way to the 1800s. Yeah, like, that I did not know. So, several devices were introduced in the mid-1800s to communicate with those who passed, um... This entrepreneur, Charles Kennard, and an attorney of all people, uh, Elijah Bond, formed the Kennard Novelty Company to produce and sell what they called talking boards back in the 1800s. So, so an entrepreneur and a lawyer 
get together and they invent the Ouija board or what's to become the Ouija board. Um, and then legend has it, the company's founders asked the board what they should name it and it's spelled out Ouija. And uh, when they asked is what that, that French? word meant... Uh, it could be. It's not like Greek. we is yes we, in French. I don't think we, Ouija, Ouija. Is, I don't know in French. Well, well, yeah, they say like, that the uh, when they ask the board, what does Ouija mean? Uh, it's it's spelled out. Good luck. Oh, well, at least it wasn't go f yourself. <laughs> so um, you know, and then so Kennard and Bond left the company in the early 1900s. And William Fold, one of the company's first employees and stockholders, took over, and he continued producing the boards. Um, the, the game's popularity, as one could guess, um, it grew uh, so much that by the 1920s, Norman Rockwell featured a couple with a Ouija board on their knees on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. So Norman Rockwell incorporated into one of his famous pictures and then full died in 1927 and his children took over uh then the estate got sold to parker brothers which also used to be in salem massachusetts so there's a connection there believe it or not and um you know and then today the ouija board still exists in one way shape or form why do we call it a game though like yeah especially because every time you see it in like a film or talked about it's like it's not a game because you're dealing with spirits yeah well, rule number one, I, I looked up a couple of rules, and one of the first rules is never use the Ouija board alone. And that's one of the things that... Oh, they break all the rules in this film. Oh, absolutely. They do. Except for the graveyard. Except for the graveyard. Which technically you could say they break because technically the house could be considered a, a, a graveyard. A, a graveyard. But here's the thing. I didn't find that they were blatantly breaking the rules. Like... They weren't doing in such an overt manner that you're like, oh, like this many horror movies, like you just go into it and you go, you're going the wrong way. You don't run into the house that has the serial killer. You run the other way. This movie didn't really have that. And where and where I where I was, the first movie did like it sets up the rules and you just know that some one of those idiot teenage kids was going to oh, I'm going to do this alone and it's like okay this movie at least they gave us the setup that this family is supposed to in one way shape or form they've been before they even found a Ouija board they were doing this they were in the business of soothsaying or seance so there's supposed to be a familiarity of what's going on. That's what I found very interesting in this movie. So when the kid takes out the Ouija board and starts doing it, to me it was... It wasn't that she was blatantly breaking the rules. It was because she has a familiarity or a working knowledge of what it is to be do a seance. And again, I thought the setup was being that the mom who was supposed to possess this third eye, so to speak. But it apparently seemed to skip a generation or two generations and go into the youngest daughter who seemed to have this. Like, you never really knew when the evil was going to crop up. And that's what I, that's what it didn't bother me, that they broke all the rules. The only reason it bothered me is that they read them out loud twice. Like, first at the teenager's house, and then at the mom read it out loud, and then... They never said goodbye, and they, like, except for the eldest daughter, the young daughter and the mom both played alone. Yeah, and, and don't forget, though, these are people 
especially the mom, who's a little bit jaded about this. I mean, she's yeah. she's a con person, in a sense. She's she a con is. person who believes that she's actually doing some good, and she needs to survive. But she also knows that this is within her family bloodline, so to speak. So by her reading the rules, she's not entirely believing. Like, she knows that she's swindling people out, and she believes that this game is also non-game, whatever you want to call it, is also a swindle. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so these are the rules, okay. But then when she sees this in her daughter, it's like, whoa, okay. I've, I may not have it, but my daughter does. We can actually maybe do some good. And that's where I thought the difference lied. Because if you see the first Ouija, these people read the rules out loud and then they blatantly go ahead. And it's like, no, you're not supposed to do that. You deserve every bad thing that happens. These people, I was like, I didn't want bad things to happen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, but that was my belief. Was there was more rules difference. in the actual game than the three that they read? No, just the three. Don't do it in the shower. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, God knows how that could go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, very much in that regard. Uh, you know, I'm with Dimitri that I, I did think that they set up and they layered everything. And, and for the longest time, I mean, in terms of pacing, right, um, I think it always works to your advantage when you can just really build to it. Like, the horror really doesn't come until, like, the last 25 minutes, I would say, realistically. I don't know. There's there's a lot of, like... Creepy. Cre- yeah. Like, I mean, part of the, scare- the scariest things for me were just having the little girl, having Doris just looking behind the couch and staring at them and then looking over and just seeing her staring at them that was like kind of oh, a more creepy thing to me the dialogue that Doris has yeah. with the boyfriend oh you want to hear something cool uh, yeah sure yeah you know what it feels like when you get strangled and then she goes but, oh, but what I like about it um, you know from his perspective because it, it, you know once you start to really kind of consider these various things um, it could just very much from the if, if you're the boyfriend you're wondering like wait is this a line that she's been fed from the mother who read yeah, me my lifeline and said, like, I'll, I'm going to basically stab the shit out of you if you do anything to my daughter. That's true. And, I didn't think about it like that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Doris was just, you know, I didn't think, but I, but it was fun to see that she was just reciting some bullshit line that she was fed. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, you know, one, one thing, too, you know, Michael Flanagan, again, he, he knows his horror movies, and he uses it as, a, as an example as to how he sort of kind of wanted to set up his act you know, his his example, he uses the exorcist now. Is this the exorcist? Absolutely not. I think if you asked Michael Flanagan if Ouija Origin of Evil is the exorcist, he'd say no. But what he used is, like, it's outline, which is, for the first 45 minutes, the exorcist is more or less a drama. You really don't know what the hell is going on. You know, there isn't a lot of quote-unquote horror that happens in that movie. Again, a lot of the intensity comes... In the, le- in the latter acts of that movie. Why does that work? And Flanagan takes that Poltergeist, trip. too. Well, Poltergeist does that as in well. In terms of the, 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 you know, we're on the graveyard. Because you're building up character. And I appreciate that, at least again, he's a, he's a student of, of film. And he wanted to bring that to Ouija. I want to build up my characters so that when the shit starts to fly, you're actually going to care for these people. And... Carpenter uses it, uh, you know, in, in, in his in Halloween. You get to know the girls. You get to know these girls 
before bad things happen. I think it's very important. Even James Wan knows this in movies like The Conjuring. You get to know the family. Why are they in this house? Why can't they get out of this house? Why should I care if they Why are Why should I care? Why, you know, and, and Flanagan does a really good job in giving us people that we care about. And all the time he salt and peppers us with creepy moments. And that's what I really, when I walked out of this movie, I was like, that was well played. Well, well done. It, you know, in terms of sprinkling the... Um uh, the priest, right? Um, I thought that was a really cool thing because uh, obviously his, his um, involvement in the movie becomes that much greater later. Um, and as the way he explains it, Father Stack had an empathy for people I believed was only possible if you had lived an intense life prior um, to priesthood. I later learned he was engaged to a woman and was always wondering about the massive change of trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the fact that there's a mystery there. We're, we're always left wondering the motives of these people um lena i thought oh, was a great i mean uh between between the mother doris and lena um they each had came at this sort of one thing of, of the father's death in a, in a in a very interesting way yeah. and yet they kept saying like you know uh, she's going through the same thing that you're going the mother was at least right. and yet the same incident but everyone's looking at it in a different way. And that's yeah. what the mother, that was her downfall, is that she wasn't seeing it that way. Right. I thought it was interesting to have Doris not understand really what happened to her father or where he was. Because, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, we think in today's standards, I would think a 10-year-old would understand that, a 9, 10-year-old. Um, but to have her have this like innocence and to have her, that's the reason why she's so easy to overcome, I think, kind of, other than the other two. Yeah, and I, but I, I think what's very important, too, about what you're saying is this is a period piece. The movie makes no bones about it. It's made, in, it was, it was as if it were, the movie even looks as if it were made in 1967. So there is that type of. There is a different type of mm-hmm. innocence that would happen with, with, with a girl like Doris. You know, when you when you talk about the priest, that's it's a very interesting thing too, because the priest you can look at as being cliche. Mm-hmm. All right, but but and again I'll just go back that that Michael Flanagan goes off and he says, you know, or Fuller, actually, I'm sorry, Fuller, uh, one of the uh, producers is like, you know, Roger Ebert once wrote that if you're dealing with demonic possession, you need a Catholic priest. No other faith seems to cut it. Agreed. I mean, he's right. I mean, you, you have to throw that trope in there. What made this interesting is that they gave this priest a little bit more dimension. He wasn't just Rod Steiger from, you know, Amityville Horror. And how long did it take you guys to figure out that there was Henry Thomas? It took the second time he popped up on screen. I was like, oh, my God, E.T. I mean, oh, I, didn't I just love the fact that's Henry Thomas. And I actually thought he was good in this. I'm like going, Elliot! <laughs> Elliot! That's Elliot! It was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Good for him. Absolutely. Um, I, I thought he played it quite well. Um, and also being kind of half, you know, um, where he's trying to help, but but challenging, you know, uh, his own faith in a way, right? Where, where he's getting all these things. Um, he's wondering, okay, how he can ultimately help this family, how he can help Doris, and what's really going on here. And then, uh, then he, then he kind of is able to explain it and, and come to grips of, okay, within the belief that I have, here's how it does actually make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which the, the verses, uh, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Yep. So it was a good little quote. Yeah, and I are, you know, one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and again, how many how many horror movies can you say this about? One of my favorite scenes in the movie was the scene where the where where, where Father um uh Father Tom uh and um Alice go out to dinner. And they have that dinner. And it's it's somewhat it was a sorrowful dinner because there were two people who there was an attraction to a connection, a bond, and because of one person's now position, you know, they're they're unable to go really much further. And it seemed it was sad because, you know, they even toasted to another life. You know, maybe in another life we can meet again. Like they, they recognize that there's something there. And I really enjoyed the dynamic and the dialogue at that dinner. And it had nothing to do with somebody coming out of a doorway or it didn't have anything to do with a scare or a creature or a monster. It just had to do with a tender moment of being out to dinner. And I actually, I really enjoyed that scene. Uh, and again, it just made me care for the characters that much more when they got into the thick of things. Plus that you're looking at both of these people who have both lost someone that yes. are dear to them. <clears throat> so being able to relate to each other in that way yeah, um, kind of brought it full circle. For yeah. Me. Yeah. And, you know, they both offered hope for each other you know to, to to be able to cope with that um and that was their ultimate you know and when he comes back and he's like who said i didn't want to communicate with her right. and obviously that's what she's been trying to do is communicate with the husband for the longest time yeah um, you know and, and, and talk, talk about the various things right uh you know the fact that they play into this idea that oh perhaps it's not some evil thing it's it is really the the husband or the dad um, the fact that he gives them the money and everything's going well and he's protective um, it's, and, and playing it through Doris, it all seems so very innocent, just like her, but just oddly creepy and innocent. Like yeah. us as an audience are like, don't believe this because we know better. But like right. as them sitting there being like, she can communicate with spirits. Someone led her to the basement and there was money there. Like, how could that be a bad thing? How could this be an evil thing? Yeah. Why do they always have to be evil? And, and again, it goes to, you know, how come your sister's not showing up to school while she's working? And, and you know, and it's just funny how that it switched from, you know, the mother who was doing the, the seances to now she was having her youngest daughter was leading the charge in talking to people. And that's when things like, again, I really liked how the movie teeter-totters on, well, something good seems to be here. They are actually, like, you know that she's channeling something. And I like how it's, the like, the we know that it's origin of evil, so it ain't going to end well. I also but I like, like that, that juxtaposition. they brought in that, like, trying to make the family, like, even though they were skeptical at first, like, oh, but I know exactly when you told your husband that <clears throat> you were pregnant with Lena and stuff like that, trying to make this family uh, believe. Yeah. And then later on in the movie giving the reasons as to why sure. the spirit knows that yeah and i i thought the exposition was fantastic it came at the right time in the right way agree uh, and it was simple enough and it explained everything you're like ooh, oh yeah um you know because the whole fact of like oh they only say one word just enough to make you question whether or not it is them uh the whole notion of well you think the answer in your mind mm -hmm. so 
I liked that a lot. I liked like that. I if like you that think a different answer in your mind, then the spirit will hold on to that and give it back to you. Yeah. Dumb spirit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also liked it. You, you brought up that Father Tom was actually based on a real character. Mm-hmm. He was based on that real priest. And I sort of kind of like how he turns out life imitates or how art imitated his life. And again, I think it just there's a there's a bit of depth in this movie, in this horror movie. You know that that, and just your, you know your 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 hacks who could just throw together a horror movie. I think that this one has a a, a better level, um, that just gives us this intensity. When you talk about what we were just talking about, um, you know, it only said one word. Like, it's funny. It, we as the audience, we don't know what any of these characters, whether it's a wife. Or a, a wife is supposed to sound like, and Father Thomas like, well, yes, it sounded female, but I it was only one word. I can't ascertain whether it was my wife. The inflection, I, I loved how the spirits played upon. Well, and it shows that, that spirits, um, like whether or not you believe in them in real life, like it could be like that they're playing, to, catering to what you want to hear. Right. So because that's what we're doing, we're sitting going to a seance wanting to hear that our person that's moved on has forgiven us for something we've done or that is okay and that they're fine and that they've moved on to a better place like that's what we want to hear so it makes sense that if there was an evil spirit it's going to just tell you what you want to hear yeah and i love that lena was pointing that out like we're helping people you know and that's something that we talked about but but she throws it right back at her face of like what so they get forgiveness, they get this. Like, what the hell's the real point? Like, you right. know, you were gonna get that anyway. Right. So, um, so, so I really think, you know, uh, the the holy the holy trinity, if you will, of of the family, um, really flushed out. I liked Lena a lot. Yeah. I like the skepticism that she presented, mm-hmm. and the bad boy or uh, the, the the bad girl she, attitude. Yeah, I mean, she had the full, like, I'm a teenager, so I don't need to listen to you anymore like you're favoring my younger sister because you think she has these abilities like she had all of those like jealous at traits and then she also had like the most like teenage personality of like i don't believe like this like it's a scam we do it all the time none of this is real but then she also is the only person that is realizing that something is not right with doris right absolutely and and again though you know she she's a character that is beginning to come of age Okay, I mean, budding romance, you know, having these feelings. Um, so she's that character too is in coming into that transition of becoming young adult, and you know, having this awareness, having a self awareness. So I think that's what makes that role pivotal. And casting that that actress, I think she carried it off. Again, this could be a dopey movie if you have the wrong actors in it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to buy and or believe in them. And I think the casting was very... I thought it was great. I thought the the girl who played um, Lena was, was fantastic. I, I really liked mm-hmm. her a lot. Um, let's let's talk about the sort of evil spirits. Uh, oh, Annalise oh. Basso, by the way. We'll give her... You know, I want to give her credit. So, you know, and she had worked with Michael Flanagan before, but mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. You know, because uh, we we get uh, so few shots of what this evil, weird thing is, um, <laughs> this demonic <laughs> creature, if you will. Um, and when we first get it, 
you know, very clever girl um, Doris is to, to go in the mirror. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, I appreciate that. that a lot. That was one of those moments where you're wa- she's walking over and you ho- you know she's holding the little piece and you're like, oh god, please, oh what is she gonna do? What is she gonna do? Oh. Like you're just like feeling that nervousness and scared yeah. for her. Um, what did you guys think when we, when we, when you guys first saw? Oh, this is the creature. I was surprised because I thought that they were going to try to go for a more, um, I guess, scary looking thing, like more rotting away, kind of like that cliche, like we talk about. The right. evil girl with the yeah. hair. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I mean, the, 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 the whatever. The, you know, the disfigured to body. Have it be, Samara. To have it be the this ring. like black um, demon kind of hazy thing was not what I expected to see. But it didn't make it that any less, like, creepy. Creepy. Yeah, agreed. You know, I mean, it could have, again, it could have gone into cliche, whereas it could have been a demon, some semblance of a demon, or this. They let, once Doris met her demise and becomes possessed, then then, then she takes on those tropes tropes of the jittery We should do a side tangent, because I think it was you who pointed out there was a great quote, like, she's not actually possessed. Yeah. You want to explain that? Because we keep saying possessed, but she's not actually Yeah, I possessed. have to... Uh, yeah, let me find this because... And I think this is from uh, Mike Flanagan directly, correct? Yeah, it's... She isn't... She's actually talked to, and she's dead. Oh, I, I have the quote. So, uh, okay. If I'm, I'm gonna, I'll steal it from you. Yeah, me. yeah. Well, so contrary to it. contrary to expectations, <laughs> Doris isn't necessarily possessed in the film, at least not in the traditional sense. After she complains of a sharp pain in the neck, um, the spirit bends her backwards and enter her body, using it as a conduit. Uh, she was killed after that scene as they broke her back. Throughout the rest of the film, it is just her possessed corpse housing the spirits. Which they do play to at the end because you see her with her father. And you take that as she's dead, but I guess people might think, you know, that that happened because of that last scene, yeah. and not back when it actually did happen. Yeah. So, and going back to the demonic creature, um, played by Doug Jones, who you know, to any you know genre Guillermo del Toro fan, I mean, Doug Jones is a, a performance artist, a, a capture of mocap person. Um, Who's, who's been made very famous uh, throughout, and you know his his movements as this 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 creature who I again, it's not red, doesn't have horns, he's not like it's just this. I found it, it to your exactly what you said. It didn't make it any nonetheless creepier seeing this this creature or this this demon we'll call it. Um, and again, it was just refreshing that they didn't have to fall back on trying to make it look so demon childish or demon whatever. It gave us something fresh to be scared of. You know, yeah. Gave us a new monster, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, Flanagan says they had a long history together. I uh, quote: "I first had the privilege of working with Doug back in 2010 um, on a tiny little independent movie that I was shooting in my apartment called." Um, Absentia? Absentia? Absentia. The appearances of the creatures in this film are so spread out and and brief, we needed an actor who could maximize the amount of impact. Audiences might see Doug for a few seconds on screen, but will not be able to forget his image. 
So I mean, it's true because it, it was something different. Yeah. Um, in terms of spirits, right? Let, um, let, let's also get into again the, the whole notion that there's just spirits in this entire building or house. I mean, yeah, there's because when once they kind of come to the conclusion stuff, you find out there's not just this one person that's there. There's multiple people that are right. there, which they do portray later in the film as pulling Lena away. Yeah. Um, again, it it um, I think that was borrowed for me, borrowed from Poltergeist. Um, yeah, I mean, you built it on a graveyard. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> so um, you know, slightly cliched, but I, I thought they did it in an interesting way, um, and the reveal of everything and 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 whatnot. Um, yeah, but but okay. So I, I guess Dimitri, from your perspective, was it handled properly? Because it, it, because it didn't feel like a retread of Poltergeist. Okay, these people. It, we've been seeing this happen a lot, um, whether it's in an Insidious movie or an Annabelle, or you know there are there are skeletons in the walls. There you know as opposed to being skeletons in the closets, there are skeletons in the walls. That's what's causing this haunting, and you know we have to. Uh, we have to take care of it. If you're a fan of Supernatural, the the television show, great show. You know, this is a common trope. I just found that it was, I like the way that it was handled. And it was handled very, it just happened, well, I've got some money here. Oh, look, let's have some money. Oh, we go, now see, now that's the one thing. She goes to the boyfriend. Oh, well, there is some jewelry down there. Do you want to come on down, idiot? Yeah. Yeah, sure. You just creep me out with a strangulation story. Of course, I want to walk that's into exactly, a dark basement. That's exactly what a- my boyfriend said, and he he had a counteract. Phil had a counteract to this one because my boyfriend said the exact same thing. He said, "Why after she said, do you want to hear something strange?" And then she tells him this creepy story that she says, "Do you want to see something?" Would he follow her? You would be the world's biggest pussy if you didn't follow <laughs> and believed, uh, like, if you were scared of a little girl, okay? Come on. I was scared of a little girl. I'd say, eh, no, Look, thank you. Ch- children Feet are don't kill me now. <laughs> you're going the wrong way. I'm just saying, like, that, 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 that's, you know, here's this guy, and, like, he's supposed to be kind of like a macho, you know, he's all proper and prim and, and this and that. And, you know, he's trying to get with the girl, with the sister, and, like, the last thing he needs to be is not be liked by Doris, and also to be, like, oh, this, this guy's not... My thing is, is why was he at the house? Did they have something planned? Was he just showing up? Because, I mean... Booty call. This is, like, what... Booty time. <laughs> okay. But, like, just showing up when the mom's there? You didn't know that. Yeah. But he did not not know that. Yeah, whatever. It, I'm calling it a weird kind of thing. I, it was just, you know, after the after that first conversation, I just would have been, uh, you, you're weird, <laughs> and you know, oh, you want to come down to the basement with me? Yeah, no. Not sure. Maybe he was there to tell the sister, like, yeah. hey, your sister's weird. You should get her checked out. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I again, I yeah, that was my one, you know. You're going the wrong way. Moments like what, dude? What are you thinking? Because if I'm creeped out in the as an audience member by that girl's pitch perfect delivery of what it's like to be strangled. I mean, she she there was never, no cutaway. No, there was not, and it was creepy. I would be like, if this girl invites me down to a basement to go check an empty wall thing, I'd be like. Yeah, it's 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 okay. Uh, I gotta go home. Uh, this was actually the one part a tuna of the, casserole. the trailer I didn't like either because the trailer gave this away. Like I if you watch, it. yeah, I if you watch the trailer, she says, 
you see her telling him, do you know what it's like to be strangled? I mean, they don't show the whole speech. But then later in the trailer, you see someone fall from a ceiling. And in my head, I'm like, that's that's the boy. That she's, yeah. like, so I didn't like I don't like going into a film knowing that what's going to happen. It's a good scene, though. I mean, that again, the bungee cord jump from the like that, <laughs> that whole I mean, it delivered it delivered chills without necessarily having to rely on digital effects mm-hmm. too much. You know, a lot of it, a lot of this was in camera. Um, it also didn't have to rely on blood. Yes. Because a lot of films, and like I say that there's a difference in horror and gore. Mm-hmm. There are gore films and there mm-hmm. are horror films. And horror films are ones that psychologically get in your mind and make you think. And sure. there's gore films that are just like, look at this gross thing. It's right. scary. Yeah. So, so we should credit Lulu Wilson as the actress um, that plays Doris. And she was in a movie called Deliver Us From Evil. Oh, so um, she's, she she's always just a creepy kid. The director, <laughs> she prepared a monologue from the film where she explains in disturbing detail what it's like to be strangled to death. And I almost fell off my chair. She was the only actress who didn't deliver the dialogue in a frightening way. Instead, she delivered it in a casually, innocently, and with a smile, which made it much more much creepier. (laughs) You know? Because of someone trying to scare you, you'd be like, oh, that would make me think more, oh, the mom is trying to make this girl say this, but just calmly, casually being like, yeah, you know this? Yeah, and then on top of this, uh, stunt, uh, talent stunt coordinator Mark Rayner said that the actress also performed beyond her years he said there's a scene where doris is scaling a wall again this it's, is something we see yeah. yeah this is a, this is a scene where again another trope where we've seen demonic people scaling a wall or a ceiling or whatnot again they used it to good effect where it's creepy um and, and 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 we wanted lulu instead of using one of lulu's stunt doubles in a wig and she was fearless the first time i saw her up in the wall with a huge grin on her face she was like yeah this is awesome that was the worst <laughs> slash best part about this actress for me was her just standing there with the whited out eyes smiling yes yeah nah. no i yeah cuz that, that that shot was helped for quite a while and then you get the reaction shot of of like what the hell yeah it just yeah Really good, really good um, on all levels in terms of editing, cinematography, and acting. Yeah, ever loving Lulu of all time, right here. Yeah, she's very, she is gifted, um, and yeah. Again, I just go back to this cast. Um, Henry Thomas, I thought again, you know, it was number one was just great from a nostalgia standpoint to see him. But as the priest, he lent a sympathetic, tragic. Thing because he lost his wife and because of and again that scene at the dinner I thought was really pivotal to this movie because it makes us care for the priest he becomes more than just a cliche he becomes right. someone in that scene that we end up caring for and the mother I thought was really really good Elizabeth Reeser I think that's how you pronounce that last name who she was in the Twilight movies the Sorry, only didn't hard, see them. The only hard part for me with her was because I watched Grey's Anatomy, and she was okay. in Grey's Anatomy for a while. <laughs> was she? And so, like in my head, that's just what I, you know. How what sometimes when you've seen only someone in one thing, that's always what calls back in your head. So I had to like for the first part of the movie remind myself she's not that character; okay. she's this character. I just it was refreshing to see people that I didn't readily recognize. Like even Henry Thomas, it took for a second time on screen. For me to go, oh my god, that's Elliot. Yeah, he gets but, lost in the role. But but uh, but Elizabeth Reeser, I felt, you know, she she has this task. You know, she's trying to take care of. She's trying to keep a house. 
She's obviously suffering the loss of her husband. Uh, she's got these two kids. She, she has a business where she doesn't make a lot of money. Right. I mean, $5. $5. She goes, here's your $5. You know, $5 is going to make the difference in this family household that she turns away because her, her daughter Lena sort of messes it up. And you saw, she, she played it out where she was like, damn it, I feel like I'm doing good. Why don't I have the power to do this? You know, instead I have to like, you know, she had to convince herself that she was actually helping people when she knew that her mother actually was helping people. Well, that's what I also like. It. That's why I like the school because, I, I mean, the fact that you're going to a religious school. Yes. You know, is in many ways in direct opposition with what you do as a profession. Right. Plus, Absolutely. we don't know anything really about her husband. I mean, it could have been her husband's choice to want them to go to the school. Maybe he was the more religious of the two. Like, because they don't give us a backstory with her husband, really, we don't have any context of the other half of the family. Right. How did you guys feel about seeing him? Because I, I almost felt like I didn't want to see him. See the father? Yeah. Because then when I saw him, I'm like, this is the man. I felt like when they sh- they gave us two different endings with showing him, because they give you that ending that he's going to make everything okay. Right. And now we're going to be fine. And then we got the ending we actually got, which right. was not, everything is not fine. Right. Yeah, we're just ha- happily dead in heaven. And meanwhile, here's the spawn of satan <laughs> yeah on earth um yeah. yeah i don't know if it was really needed to show him i think that we got the context she could have just thought lena or doris can talk to spirits she did talk to dad that's why this is and didn't we didn't have to make that connection of seeing him as well i mean i didn't mind seeing him but like a hand the back of the head i just didn't i really wanted to stay away from the face mm-hmm. um and i felt we just went, you know, we didn't need to go that far. And Why that's did you go, what, you married that? What? Is, yeah. that what you, is that what you were thinking? Maybe. No, oh, my gosh. Maybe. You know, I, no, I just, I, it leaves something to the imagination. I, I hear you. Well, we saw his picture in the beginning, so we already know what he looks like. Yeah. No, I guess. So, you know, and I want to talk a little, just a little bit more about Reezer and, and, and what she embraced the challenges that the movie was going to bring because she goes on saying what really spoke to me or her about this movie is how it explores grief and that strong desire to see or talk to someone we've lost even just once more. In many ways, the film isn't simply a horror movie and that's what makes it the most terrifying. And, And I agree, these characters don't know what's happening to them because they're already dealing with a devastating loss. The fact that they believe that the fact that being a medium is their business where they're supposed to talk to the dead and they're a family dealing with actual loss. I actually it was just a nice, refreshing twist. And I agree with what she said. They can't even fathom life could get worse. And you know, we as the audience and the characters learn. No idea. It's also just something very depressingly poetic about the fact that her want and need to try to connect with her husband again is what demises her family. Right. Well, that's it's great because she's she's so blinded and the family is so wrought with grief that you're vulnerable enough to believe most anything and you therefore the trickery that happens to the family you you see it happening it's not how the hell did you fall? Like, why the hell did you not believe? Like, why Why did you continue to live in the house? Well, it's that, you know, there was such a want of, I want to talk to my husband one more time. 
She and wanted was, to stay in a space where she remembered being with right. him. Like there was all of this like I'm going to be blind to everything else that's yeah. going on just because this is so prevalent in my head. Yeah, and as an actress, she sold it. Yeah. You know, and at the same time she tried to be strong, but she wasn't afraid. There was a vulnerability. There was a big vulnerability to her. I, I really thought that she did a fantastic job. You know, and, and we're talking about a horror movie here. I, I believe that horror is cheapened. Um, sometimes that people, like, there are there can be some really fantastic performances in a horror movie. You know, in a it's well not just a girl out. screaming. It's not just a girl <laughs> screaming. Or in her underwear. But, or yeah, and I mean, right? I mean, right. really? Come on. Yeah, true. You know, a girl or a man. And when you look at some of the great horror movies, you know, even going back to like a Halloween, or even when you look at the Universal classics like Bella Lugosi playing Dracula. I mean, you can get these creepy, great performances. Jamie Lee Curtis, this is how she got her start in the industry, and, and she respects that, and she still has kept a hand in that genre. So long as an actress or an actor can bring their 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 gifts to the screen and the director-writer can, can appreciate and respect the genre, look at what William Friedkin does with The Exorcist. I know I'm going far back. You know, they're far different than a Friday the 13th movie, which I love. I, you know, I, I don't mind blood and gore like that, that. That can be fun to me, but I don't hold it on the same level as, say, a John Carpenter's Halloween. It's a completely different kind of movie. Same thing with like a Psycho and, and mm -hmm. such. You can have great performances and sometimes they're very much overlooked because it's in a horror movie, much like performances are overlooked in a comedy. We've talked mm. about that before, too. You know, you talk about a genre film like a comedy... People, uh, like, will not, like, they'll say Gene Wilder is great, but did he ever get an Academy Award for being in Blazing Saddles? Or, like, do comedies get that kind of respect? Very little bit. Horror, zero. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the closest I can think of was Sigourney Weaver in Aliens being nominated for Best Actress. It's the closest that I've seen. Yeah, well, that's because people will say it's a sci-fi movie. Yeah, true. When you think of I horror, think. you think... A lot of times, I think it's the portrayal of <clears throat> you're thinking this is this person's first role. Right. They started Although, off in horror, which a lot of people have. I mean, Johnny Depp's first role is Nightmare right. on Elm Street. Although I do believe Ruth Gordon, uh, Ruth Gordon in, um, well, Ruth Gordon got much acclaim from Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. But again, we're going back to 1968, <laughs> you know? No. I mean, today... When you label something as a horror film, The Shining, film, I would put up the people. The Shining, yeah, you know, it's. Yeah, today they're, it's not given that kind of, I guess, respect as an art form as it once was. Yeah, and Mia Farrow, uh, and say, you know, since, since we're talking about women in horror film, there, yeah, there can be really great performances. I think Ouija is a really good example of where we had a really good cast come together from top to bottom. Um, but it makes you like the characters so much more mm. and believe in them. They're not caricatures. Let's talk about the ending um, because, uh, you know, Lena, and I've said it for, for me, the most level-headed of all the characters, mm -hmm. um, just broken. 
just completely broken. And she has to make that hard decision of, okay, here's here's how we solve this. I'm going to sew my sister's mouth shut. Yeah. Uh, and then now she, now she can't even, like, keep anything in her head. Here's the question that was on my mind, and I want to see what you guys think, too, about it. At the end, do we think that she is now possessed as well as once Doris was kind of in a way? Um, is she now dead and it's something overtaking her body? I don't believe that she's her? dead because they didn't show us anything that was like a catastrophic breaking of a back. Something's not right. I mean, do you think something got inside of her and she's fighting back and forth between it taking over and her taking yes, over? Yes, she heard the voices. Which led her to kill her mom, mm. you know. Which I saw coming, but it didn't make it any less tragic, you know, for these families. Now, here's the thing. I said it repeatedly. The first Ouija was was craptastic <laughs> and very unmemorable to me. I, I, you know, I I researched a little bit, and I'd forgotten that Lynn Shay, who's in the Insidious movies, is also in that one. Mm-hmm. She's in. She's in the first Oculus, and she plays the older Lena in the movie. Like they, they did tie in. It's just I not as it's not as easy to like see the tie in unless you're I, actually looking. Yeah, I I completely that movie was so like it just was out gone. I like I forgot that because there was a whole thing about the sewing of the mouth. There was the whole thing of that, and I was like going, oh yeah. And that's why it was hard for me. Like, I didn't even realize this was supposed to be related to that one, I think. It was... Yeah. You know, and this is... That's one I'm not going back to. Yeah. Yeah. I've got better horror movies to watch during this Halloween season. You're fine without it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All right. Um, I want to move into more production stuff. Okay. I'll take that as a yes. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so we, we, we've talked about it being a period piece, um, and we had the pleasure of, well, we didn't directly, but um, Anatomy of a Movie uh, through Courtney Stewart, who's been on a couple of our shows. She got to interview the costume designer. So why don't we take a look at... And while we do that, you're the gonna, spirits are calling me. All right. <laughs> Dimitri's going to take a quick bathroom break, but it's okay. You don't have to take a break, because guess what? We're going to play the clip. So go ahead, James. Cue it up. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us here at Anatomy of a Movie. I'm your host, Courtney Stewart, and I am joined by the lovely and amazing costume designer for Ouija. Miss Lynn Falconer is in the building. Hello, Lynn. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. So glad you could join us to talk about this movie, The Origins of Evil, that is out in theaters, and you did costume designing for the film. Yeah. And so you are you're a pro at the horror film sort of costume design world. How did you end up sort of having such experience with all of the horror films? Well, you know what? I, I went back and I counted all my credits. I've actually done more dramas and romantic comedies. However, in the last four years, I've been working with a gentleman named Mike Flanagan, who is the director of uh, Ouija Origins of Evil. And he's been on a total roll. So um, I think if you look at the chronology, yes, horror is definitely something that I can do, but I, I do all genres, actually. And um uh, you know, it does take a special, uh, certain consideration when you're designing for a horror film, but um, they're all fun to me. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about those special considerations, like specifically yeah. for We Do the Origins of Evil? Like what was different? What did you sort of have to take into account and do differently for this film that maybe you don't necessarily do on your dramas? 
Right. Um, well, one thing um, in particular is you have to be really aware of having a lot of duplicates to reset things. Now, that being said, Flanagan does not usually use a ton of blood, but if you know somebody's flying through a window, we have to be ready with several duplicates. And you know, if I'm just doing a modern film, it's it's still not that easy. Even if I pull something from, say, Topshop, which is a favorite sh store of mine, I'll go back three days later after I fit it, and there's no more duplicates there. So then you have to call all over the place and find them. Um, now with the period film, uh, that was a lot more challenging. So if I needed to have duplicates for a particular change, which um, when viewers see the end of the movie, there's a lot of needing to reset. I actually had a, to build a lot of those things and or modify fashions that look 60-ish. Does that make sense? That, so I bought yeah, new, but I modified. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> can you tell our audience a little bit about sort of your background? Because saying that you had to modify yeah. these things, were, were you, did you go to fashion school? Like, how did you yeah. get to this place where you even know how to do these things? <laughs> well, I, I think I've been always interested in fashion. I would always draw the Miss America pageant when I was six years old. Um, I moved to New York City after getting an English degree at UC Santa Barbara because I knew I wanted to design fashion. And I did that for about, um, did school and then worked on 7th Avenue for about eight years. And then just felt like I wanted to have my finger on the button more because a lot of my friends were kind of in the entertainment business. And this is a really strange story, but um, a friend of a friend was dating an actress on a TV show and I happened to be sitting with her having a drink and I said, you know what? I think I want to be a costume designer. And she <laughs> said, well, you know what? I know somebody doing a small independent film right now why don't you just go have an interview with them so i got the script and i made like 50 boards of what i thought the characters should wear and i believe it or not i didn't think i was going to get the job as the costume designer i thought i was going to be the intern and i actually got the job as and i'd never been on a set before now that's not a normal story uh, but since then i've done you know i come from hardcore indies where i have to make things from paper and slowly and surely just have made it up and I'm a working film costume designer now. So yeah, but not a usual story. <laughs> not unusual, but an amazing one nonetheless. Everybody's story yeah. in Hollywood seems to be a little bit different, so that's cool no yeah. matter what. Um, yeah. So working on Ouija specifically, as you mentioned, it is a period piece. Um, mm -hmm. Did you, what was the sort of the, how did you approach going at like what you wanted to do with the costumes on this film? Yeah. Well, so um, the first thing I do, and I wish I could show you, is I do major, like I said, even from that first job, I do boards galore, and I really spend weeks on end finding, like, perfect images for the characters, because I feel like that's sort of that rudder before I even go out, and then I let the happy accidents happen when I find them uh, either in the store, like thrift stores, I pulled from costume houses, uh, but one thing I did do because I was shooting, we were shooting in Los Angeles. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of period material out there. There's yeah. Mad Men, there's, you know, um, uh, Masters of Sex. There's a lot of 60s going on. So when I went to the costume houses, I was having a hard time finding a lot of, you know, like pencil pants, which look good around the house. So I ended up at a lot of estate sales in LA and Las Vegas. And it just so happens there's a lot of aging starlets right now. And the time period, I was finding like some of the most incredible pieces. Um, so a lot of our characters' wardrobe, the main wardrobe, are from 
estate sales and they're just like really one-off things oh, um and then what else thrift store shopping and la is just a great shopping mecca um i worked in new york <laughs> for many years and i always thought that new york was the best but la is definitely coming around we're doing pretty good out here <laughs> yeah i am <laughs> what was your favorite piece that you found or put together for this film right well, um, I would say that one piece that gave me a lot of trouble, but I was really, really pushing for it, was um, something that I found in this Las Vegas estate sale. It was this ex-showgirl's house, and you could just tell by walking in, this woman had the best life. You know, she just had, <laughs> like, fashions that were, like, H&M, but from 1965, and she had three rooms full of it. And this one piece is um, uh, Elizabeth Reeser, the mother, who is Alice. She wears it at the seance table, and it has these wonderful women's faces all over it. And it was actually a handmade blouse, but it was and it was not made that well, so we had to almost pull the whole thing apart and put it back together. But I really stuck to my guns, and it it looked it looks pretty cool. It's my favorite. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, have yeah. you been able to see the whole film in its final situation? Because I know a lot of people that work on the films, you never actually see the final product. <laughs> well, as it, it's really interesting you say that. So I saw a pre-cut before we did reshoots, and we were my husband <coughs> was supposed to go with me last night. We are literally going in two hours to go see it in a real theater oh, cool. so i have seen a pre-cut but i hadn't seen the the final final so i'm i'm about to see it so awesome. yeah well that's exciting i hope you enjoy yeah. it because your work is fantastic in it thank you and just be we gotta close out for the evening but we want to know what's your favorite time period to either pull for costumes or even dress yourself what era do you like the best well, that's a great question. I would say the one that I was just designing for, because I was born in 1967, don't tell anybody, <laughs> but 67 to 72, that, that oh. early 70s period oh. is my absolute favorite, um, just in film. And I actually have a vintage film. clothing business, and that's that's my, I have so much of that particular period, because it's just was such an attractive um, silhouette in that in that time period. Definitely was. Okay, and the last yeah. but not least, we have to know, what's your favorite piece in your own personal wardrobe? Something that you just have to wear all the time. <laughs> I have this black uh, Laura Biagiati jacket that I got on eBay. Oh, wow. And um, it's, it's, it's like the swing jacket, and I don't even know what the fabric is, but it's from 1981, and it's fabulous, and I will never sell it. Anyway. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of this about Ouija, the origins of evil. We can't, all of you guys out there who haven't seen it, need to go see it. It's a great film. Thank you so much for your work on it. Beautiful job. And we yep. look forward to seeing what you do next. Oh. So there you have it. What a fantastic interview. Um, what did you guys? Uh, um, I liked her talking about how you have to have multiple of the costume because of like things like going through windows and stuff and like it's like thinking about how she went to these estate sales to get these pieces and have having to recreate some of these costumes so that when they kind of get destroyed they're at the film you still have them there's a lot of work that goes into that yeah absolutely. I mean I can I, I can attest uh, I actually work within a costuming department uh, on a major on, on contacts you know it's my one acclaim to fame it's the one it's a movie that I actually have a credit on um, and I worked very closely with the costume department. So I found it fascinating that uh, she didn't use a lot of costume houses because as a PA, I had to go to a ton of costume houses. Um, 
and uh, you know her going to estate sales. But having the multiple costumes, uh, what what I learned from that whole experience is that uh, number one, the people that I worked with, Joanna Johnston, uh, Pam Wise, were some of the sweetest, kindest. Most they were just great people to work with and for. And you realize how much detail, and it's stuff that you and I, I'm never going to notice. Like, you know, I'm not going to yeah, notice. Passes me by. Like it, it, it'll pass, like, and it's the way something could be beaded. Um, the type of boots a character is wearing, and, and they actually will have somebody who will wear it down to give it age. And these are all things that you just figure they might pick up somewhere else but no they'll buy a brand new pair of boots and it's got to be aged a particular way uh it's the color palette that 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 accentuates the character that you just never really sometimes think of but a costumer has to and that's what i found very fascinating in this interview uh especially that we're talking about a horror movie that is a period piece you know yeah my sister does um costume design as well so it's like so before she started doing stuff I would not have ever thought about how much work goes into some of these things but then seeing her even make like a leather belt for a renaissance fair type of mm-hmm. thing and having to wear it down and having yeah. to hand stitch in the different patterns and stuff I'm like this is like a full time job while you're on set like for three four months or whatever you're sitting there probably like all day every day working on different pieces fixing pieces you know like hoping what if like something right. that you really love that you only have one of like that shirt she was talking about what if that gets ruined? Then you have to start from scratch and find out something else that'll work. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it's very fascinating in the detail and, and and working with the actors to make sure that the colors are great. So that's a, you know I find that very very fantastic. You know what you have to do and put together. Well, uh, we also talked about how a lot of this was done in camera, um, old school sort of technique. I did notice the um, I was kind of because I you know I noticed these things. I was slightly confused. If it was actual film, because of the uh, the dots, the dots, the real change dots. I was, was like, it? I did not believe I was actually watching real change dots. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, it took. I was like, wait, did I just see what I saw? And I was like, okay, let's 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 see within about twenty minutes. And for those who are uninitiated, they've just made it look like cigarette burns. But why would you have cigarette burns on a digital movie? Well. When they used film and when there are actual film projectors, uh, they had people called projectionists. And projectionists would get reels of film that they had to spool up. What was it? Like a two-hour movie, six reels? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about six. Uh, it's it's about 20 minutes a reel. Okay. So in a movie like Ouija, which is about an hour and a half, uh, I don't know, do my math, it's about what, five, five, six, five. five reels, okay? So, but the... The, the the projectionist was in charge for not only making sure that it looked good on screen, that it was framed, it was in the right format, but he had to start up the next reel. So, you know, they couldn't platter up the entire movie because they came in a platter. So there were things called, they were real change cues, which uh, usually... Traditionally, they go in the right top right-hand portion of the screen. They are deliberate, and they start. I think I believe it gives you about thirty seconds, and it starts off as one, two, and then three. And they're usually dots or circles. Uh, they're 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 commonly called cigarette burns, 
and it gave the projectionist. Once he saw the first one go up, he knew he had that much time where he had to start the projector because the projector would have to get up to speed and then make sure that the the real change went well or else things would go fluey uh, while you're watching the movie. So here I am watching this digital movie and I'm like going, wait, what the hell is that? How, is there a real change? I go, that's awesome. And it just happened consistently throughout. And if you notice, folks, too, after the real change, they were really, they were purposely designed to happen at certain parts of the movie. So after you saw those blips, it would usually cut to another scene. So they were never in the middle of dialogue because you couldn't want to screw that up. It's very specific. They did a great job in choosing, you know, you just time it out. And and I thought that was great. They used the old Universal logo, yes, um, which was fantastic. I mean, this movie appeared as if it were made in that time period, and um, their 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 in camera trickery. Their, like I said, the dioptic um, uh, split scenes that they use too, just which which is a rarely used device today. You know, it, they brought it back, and it looked awesome. And this movie I did see in an XD type of screen and environment. So those scenes uh, looked great. And that is when you have something in the foreground and you have something in the background, but they're both visual, like they're not fuzzy. They're both in the same type of um, great focus where you can see them. And uh, Michael Flanagan... Again, I, I just can't praise this guy enough uh, because he really was going old school and using in-camera great technology, mm-hmm. old school technology, but it made it look refreshing. It made it look good, much so, like James Wan is able to do. Yeah. So, yeah. So you have, you, you've uh, found a video for us. That explains this, yes. This, we'll call it a phenomenon. A phenomenon. <laughs> Um, so go ahead, James. Cue that up for us, if you will. And by the way, if you're uh, if you're listening, you, um, obviously it's going to be a lot of visual stuff. So you can uh, get the link from our our uh, rundown. Oh no, there's a. I didn't actually pre-watch this. There's writing. Can't there's the writing. writing. You can't here. read. It's too far away from me. But they're demonstrating with um, clay um, caricatures. Um, So again, if you're kind of listening, um, they're showing you various... um, uh, A lot of... We'll just call it math. Because it is very very mathematical, but it it explains the, uh, the reasons as to why, and the blur plane, and... Um, also kind of showing us examples of old uh, movies that have done the same technique. Right there, Jaws. Jaws. John Carpenter, as I mentioned before. And then, uh, the Hateful Eight. Um, they just threw in the booklet for Hateful Eight, um, which is the uh, Tarantino movie. Uh, we also did an anime movie for that, so check it out. Pulp Fiction. Uh, 
another image from Hateful Eight. Uh, what movie is this? Or are these just... These are just images showing us, you know, how this works. And, and again, it's refreshing to see, and it's done in a horror movie. You know, Brian De Palma used to use this technique a ton, as, as does John Carpenter. And what's great about it is that, you know, sometimes we're not actually supposed to be seeing what's going on in the background. But when you show us what's going on in the background, that becomes even creepier, especially when your foreground is so in sharp and focus that you know we're not hiding anything so we can see the danger that's looming behind us and this is a simple technique it's a technique that when you go in to get your eyes checked they're using a diopter on your eye to see what you can focus on and what you can see that's basically what they're doing to the lens of a camera and i you know it, it really is a great technique that's been used as far back as orson wells and citizen kane and now to to this uh it, it and again it just looks a little bit refreshing when it's you know especially there was a scene where we see doris's sort of profile and it's mm -hmm. dark and then we're able to see the background like really sharp and clear and again i think it just adds to a level of it brings up an intenseness you know and it again, doesn't it does not the because the big difference you know you can kind of achieve this just naturally with video but it looks cheap yes and you know the whole point of film is uh to have it have great depth and and you know to be able to control focus and so it's a it's it's a very you have to be aware of it of why you're doing it yeah because if it, again it can look like video and cheap agreed and what i said at the top of the show good horror is good manipulation mm -hmm. okay a good director you know he wants to manipulate what you're seeing on screen that's how he earns his or her scares yeah, okay. it's, it's also another way they can like distract you. Yes. Because if there's, everything is clear and you could be paying attention to everything in the background that you're not maybe realizing what's happening quite yet. And then Absolutely. And, it, and it's hiding things, too. It's, it's not just there's a reason why there are close-ups in horror movies. It's because they don't want us to see what could be in the background. So when that character turns around, oh, my God, there's the scare. You know, so there's a purpose. And when you're using effects like this, you know, these effects are made for building suspense and heightening your visual aesthetic to a movie that, uh, again, I can't wait to see more of this guy's films, you know? Absolutely. Because he, he, he does this, uh, he, he uses this to, uh, to a plum, so hmm. to speak. Um, absolutely. Um, speaking of... Uh Mike, here's here's some praise from uh, Blum. Uh, he says, Mike is that rare combination of someone with a strong point of view and vision, but he's also able to take notes and curveballs better than almost anyone I've ever worked with. When you're doing extreme characters and extreme story, you must ha you have to ha trust the person in charge because it can be a fine line between scary and funny. In Mike's hands, you are absolutely on the safe side of being scary, and you're working with a deeper, layered story. So Yeah. And listen, he's cutting his teeth, much like James Wan did, much like Eli Roth did, um, you know, uh, much like Steven Spielberg. You know, all these uh, these people are familiar with horror genre. People like John Landis, you know, have made bones by working in the horror genre. Uh, and, and you look at somebody like James Wan today, 
you know, this guy did a Fast and Furious movie. This is the guy known for doing Saw, you know, and and Conjuring and, and Insidious. So you can make your bones doing horror movies. Uh, you know, Carpenter did the same thing. Uh, and then he ends up being the man who does, like, Starman. He does more personal-type stories. It's Horror is, can be, is a fantastic genre if you will allow yourself to see it. You know, there's, there's crap in a lot of genre, whether it be drama, uh, docudrama, whether it be comedy or, 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 or horror movies. Anything. You know? But but horror is one in which uh, again it can be it's very hard to do. You brought it up, and I think you made a good point earlier. There's there can be a difference between blood and gore. I can go to a horror movie like a Friday the Thirteenth where I know I just want to see blood and gore all over the floor, and you know, uh, or I can see something like a Halloween, or I just recently watched. Uh, uh, Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where you let cast and director. Like bring you through this journey, and with style, yeah. you know you can build suspense. And I think we well, I think, I think, I think, example. Um, you know the budget for this is nine million. Nine million. And you know for a horror movie, that's actually quite a lot in some sense. And I think that's where people just have this notion that horror, because it can be made for cheap, that it is cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas you know, uh, take like the most. Um, let's say Bad Moms, right? That that seems to be a comedy that a lot of women loved and is regarded as somewhat successful. Um, Very you know, successful. I think what was its budget? Forty million. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, I'd have to look it up, but so, probably. You know, um, and then uh, we just recently did. Um, why am I blanking on it? Uh, Jack Reacher two, and that was right. sixty million. Um, and believe it or not, it actually looked cheap because it only had a $60 million budget. Um, I think, though, sometimes with these big budget films, not to cut you off, though, because they're relying on money mm-hmm. and they kind of forget sometimes a craft and tricks to use, and that cheapens the film. Agreed. Well, yeah, I mean, James Wan has said this, you know, James Wan has said this a lot, especially after filming Furious 7, I believe. Furious 7, right? Yeah. He was afraid to work with such a huge... He never in his career had worked with the budget that he was given for to do Fast and Furious 7. And he was like, I'm just not used to it. And, you know, when you're working with a lower budget, you have to be a little bit more creative. How do I get around filming this where I know I'm not going to have special effects and um, a crew? What do I have to do? But that, to me, is where you become the most collaborative with your editor, with your cinematographer. You, know, you have to choose very carefully where your budget's going. And how you're going to film something to make it scary. And at the same time, I think you want to make it look unique. And that's where James Wan has really made his bones, because he he did things and made things look different. It wasn't just a static shot. He would move his camera around. Because he was allowed to, and it wasn't going to cost him any more money, you know. I don't know how much money it costs for them to retrofit <laughs> this movie, but it lent to the fact that this was shot. It, I believe that this was shot in 1967. Um, a nine million budget would have been a lot bigger than it is today, right? Especially if they're using film, you know. So you you are. Many directors will say you have to be more creative. And you don't sell out when you get bigger budgets. You know, you, it's it's a career path. 
but but there are some people like um John Favreau is a perfect example of this. This is a guy that does Iron Man movies, Jungle Book movies, yet he chose to make Chef. He wanted purposely to go back to making an independent film so he can be more creative given the freedom and have that working with a smaller budget. You know, he's a perfect example of how a director says, you know, I, I want to go back to, there's something about happy accidents happening because I don't have the money mm-hmm. to do it. And so, um, you know, Flanagan, of course, I think as he progresses, will get some more money to do more movies. And uh, again, a $9 million budget, you're right. You know, it's not a ton of money. Uh, or it's, it's, it's a little bit more than usual, I should say. Um, there was this other movie that came out, very micro-budgeted, The Witch, when you talk about oh, period yeah. piece horror movie again, another fantastic period piece horror movie again made on a very short budget, and that's the thing with horror is that I was at Lionsgate. Horror put Lionsgate on the map. You know when you have movies like Saw, which cost my memory might be wrong, but it was around two million dollars, if that. When you look at how much a movie can reap in the benefits of costing only two million dollars, or a movie like An Open Water. You know, horror can be cheap, and at the same time, it actually can be cheap in the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. You know, this again, not the case. No, absolutely not. And that, that but that's why uh, I do want that stigma to kind of go away from the, from that idea. Agreed. That, that just because it's made for cheap, that it's a cheap movie. Yeah. So, um, there you go. Uh, music. I didn't really notice the music that much to be honest um, but it's made by the M- Newton brothers um, who replaced Anton Sanko San- Sanko um, who did the first movie um, again I thought it fit the movie just right yeah um, again nothing it's, they, they didn't choose to like make it a very period music sounding movie either which I think would have kind of taken away from the storyline a little too much if they put too much of that in there like oh Let's play a lot of music that was popular at that time period. But they did play, like, source music, like, whether it from a record player or a radio, mm-hmm. which was cool. I didn't find that the score in this movie, like, it didn't rely, again, it didn't rely on the high staccato of a violin. Yeah, yeah the- I, 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 I like that it didn't try to build unnecessary tension in a yes. moment of, like, get ready. Get right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I did like that. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I appreciated that a lot. Yeah. You know, in this movie. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Um, oh, you, you already talked about the um, the, the choking. Uh, well, so here's a couple scenes that were in the trailer but were missing from the final cut. Uh, Jenny, Jenny choking her father to death. Um, a scene of Doug Jones dressed as a doctor turning around slowly and the highly advertised scene of Doris in the doorway giggling. Hmm. So there was a couple of scenes that left... Which we always get with trailers. They yeah. put some in the trailer, and then it doesn't make the final cut of the film. Beat and switch. <laughs> you know, you d- yeah. d- listen, you're still crafting the movie. You know, yeah, ultimately, you don't know. Um, so, uh, so far, domestic, we have uh, 16.7 million. So, already made its. Uh, not the, the, uh, Dimitri, what was the full budget? The nine million is just production budget, but uh, full budget. Yeah, you, you know, you gotta. Twelve million for for advertising as well. Yeah, I would. Total. I would say. I mean, 
Universal. This was a heavily advertised movie. It was. It was very. Advertised. You know, uh, PG thirteen. Um, so, you know, I would estimate this budget being anywhere is between twelve and twenty. All in hard mm. prints and advertising, publicity, whatever marketing that they put, whether it be viral marketing, social media. Uh, into billboards, into advertising. I did see this on TV, you know, a good handful of times. So, you know, it was nothing that for Universal was going to break the bank. Um, With that said, as of yesterday, we're looking at, you know, worldwide, we're looking at $24.5 million. Not too bad for a movie that costs nine, (laughs) right? But that's worldwide. You know, domestically... You know, we're 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 looking at maybe sixteen point seven. This movie did not open up to number one like the first Ouija did. Um, it, in fact, uh, again, it was, I think it suffered from it suffered from the first movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really do it, and it's and it's too bad because they really put great effort into this one. Usually, don't especially in horror, it's hard. To make a sequel as good as your first movie. It's oh, very, your first very, one's very, shitty. And when your first one's shitty, I guess the adage was, well, we have nowhere to go but up. Yeah. But at that point, the audience is tainted. They don't understand the hard work that it took for these guys to actually make a good movie. And, and that's too bad. You should tell your friends, if you're watching us and you've seen Ouija, tell your friends, like, uh, hopefully you agree with us. But, you know, the, the other strange thing, too, is on Rotten Tomatoes... Now here's the th- here's the weird thing. This is such a flip than what we're normally used to. Rotten Tomatoes. This gets an eighty percent, eighty percent for a horror movie on Rotten Tomatoes. That's that's an anomaly. Doesn't happen all the time. Usually find it with your Conjuring kind of movies. The Cinema Score, the audience poll gave it a C. A C. It's usually the other way around. It's usually like you'll get a low Rotten Tomatoes score, and then the audience will give it an A. Yeah, I mean, a lot of films on Rotten Tomatoes that are scored very lowly, I love. Right. And then some are scored highly that I don't like at all, so that is quite the difference in your normal... That's a disparity. And what what were people expecting when they went into Ouija? I mean, I don't know, because I was expecting a crap movie. I think a lot of people nowadays from any horror film are never expecting that much from it anymore. But they give it a C? I mean, this to me is not a C movie. This no. is no. not a C grade. What would you I think they them? want scares. I would give this probably a B plus A minus. Okay, Phil, uh, I would give it a B plus. Yeah, I mean at least B plus A minus. I'm in that. A C. I mean, come on, audience. What That's do you, like what saying do you... it's an average film. Like it was all right. It was. It was a in, in cinema score in the in the cinematic universe. A C is is almost as good as an F because it means that. Here's why. If you are talking with your friends about a movie, any movie, right? A C is a, yeah, it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. You you would say somebody asked you about movie, movie blah blah blah, they and they go, "Did you see that movie?" And you go, "Yeah, it's okay." Say that that's like a C score, and it's okay is not going to reach a word of mouth where your friends are going to no. go. I'm going to spend twelve dollars to go it's see okay it. Means- it's okay means. I'm going to wait for it either to come on HBO or on television exactly. at some point to watch it. I'm not going to go pay money or even go to Redbox to get it. Exactly. And that's why a C score is as good as an F. But when you, but, but if somebody asks you about movie blah, 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 and you say, oh, my God, the movie was awesome, right? 
that's more inclined for that person who may be a moviegoer. They're going to go, oh, okay, I'm going to go spend my 12 bucks on this. I but also if, think sometimes if you say something's terrible, someone will pay the money to go see it just to like see why you thought it was terrible. Perhaps. But okay, they're not going to. Yeah, I just don't understand what they might have been. Did they see the first movie? <laughs> because, and again, this is not the scariest movie I've seen this year. But it delivered enough chills and enough creepiness, and it did it with a, it did it with style. It was a good Halloween feeling yeah. movie, just that kind of like spirit of the holiday, right? And and even though it's called Ouija, folks, this movie doesn't really rely on the Ouija board itself. Not like it's much. not right. The Ouija board doesn't even come in until probably fifteen twenty minutes into the film. at the very least, right? And. It doesn't rely on just sticking on, you know, the It could have been game. very much Jumanji for Ouija. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Folks, if you're watching, you know, we're assuming that, A, you've seen the movie, you're horror fans. You know, I'm telling people this movie was far better than this C that CinemaScore audiences gave it. It literally is at 80%. I'd even mm-hmm. go a little bit higher. Um, as, you know, as far as my review would go, for whatever my opinions were. I think it's worth going to watch. Absolutely. It's definitely worth a trip to the theater to watch because... There's I no mean, I always, There's nothing. Nothing. Well, I just say, like, you know, there's movies that you can buy later and watch at home, and there's movies that you should see in a theater, and any horror or action film should be seen in a the theater. That's what it's designed for. Yeah, yeah especially this one. And, and, and the crowd, again, granted, I saw this middle of the week, so my theater wasn't overly crowded um but it had people in it and they were screaming when they were supposed to scream they giggled after they screamed that's the other fun thing about horror is like you can laugh at yourself for screaming sometimes you know and it depends on how relentless the horror is because sometimes it never lets you go ouija gave you the breather Mm -hmm. but it never the pacing of this film i thought was perfect it was uh just a, a little over an hour and a half you know, and um, beginning, middle, end, I, I I felt satisfied when I walked out. I didn't uh, I didn't feel it overstayed its welcome, mm-hmm. and uh, I forgave it whatever minor infractions or cliches it might have. Yeah, like there were certain to. things I would have liked to see from it, but it wasn't like I needed needed to see them so bad that I was upset that they weren't there. Right. Yeah. No, well, there you have it. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? I think I just gave mine all. <laughs> all right. Three? Um, I mean, just go, just what he said. Tell your friends to go see it because I think, and it's kind of what both of you said, horror films have unfortunately gotten a very bad stigma on them that they are a cheap um, commodity, that they are something that's not really worth your money to go see. So I think when something does come out that, especially with all the filmmaking and all the direction that went into it, it's you should be telling your friends to go see it so that we can make more films that are kind of based towards it like this instead of just the cheap. Yeah, and let's let's face it. Horror is never going to die um, because when you look at what's on TV right now, when Walking Dead, like, you know, one of the more popular shows on American TV. American Horror Story. American Horror Story. You know, they get ratings. They make money at the box office. You know, they can make money at the box office. It's 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 a genre where when you look at the end of the year at your top twenty movies, you know a handful of them more than likely are going to be a horror movie in there, along with science fiction. So, you know, it's never going to go away. 
We just need to take it a little bit more seriously, uh, or people should like just look at them and and pay attention to performance at times. Look, like I said, I'm not going to look at a Friday the Thirteenth movie and expect grand performances. No, you're going to uh, expect one one or another underwear getting killed yeah. while having sex with somebody. In you know, but but that's what I'm going to expect from that. If it does something different. Like, I'm either going to be like, well, why the hell didn't you just stick the formula? Or I'm going to be, oh, wow, you, you just elevated that form. Okay, that's fantastic. That, that's why, in a sense, too, I am looking forward to the Halloween, whatever the hell you want to call it, whether it's a reboot or reimagine, whatever it is, because John Carpenter is now involved in one way, shape, or form. So I can't wait, obviously. <laughs> I'm a big horror Halloween fan. Also... Sometimes the worst horror films, if you go into them with the right attitude, can be the best comedy films. And they get great <laughs> entertainment. Absolutely. So there you have it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining yeah. us again. Uh, comment below. Let us know what you guys thought. We we truly appreciate it. Uh, you know, we do read them. We do respond as much as we can. Um, and it's always fun, especially for something like this. Let us know what you. Who was your favorite character? There's so few characters. Let us know your favorite. Um, why did you like the movie? If you didn't like the movie, why didn't you like the movie? Uh, I'm very curious if you're in that uh, C Cinema Score uh, crowd. Did you, you see the first one? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, let us know. Uh, and as always, you can follow Dimitri at D Movies 1701. What's yours? I'm at BFIPS14. There you go. Um, and follow us here at the Popcorn Talk. Thank you guys for joining us. By the way, uh, uh, Broadway Breakdown is on Popcorn Broadway Talk. Broadway Breakdown. This Sunday we're discussing Rocky Horror Picture Show, the film with original with Tim Curry. So tune in and check it out. 3 p.m. There you go. Check that out. Uh, and we'll be doing Doctor Strange, Inferno, um, La La Land, and a couple others. So uh, no, as of now, nothing official on the horror slate, but I'm sure we'll get something so We're getting in the into books. November, so... We're gonna get to November. Um, fantastic. There could, fantastic- could be fantastic horrible beasts. movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> fantastic beasts. Yeah. yeah fantastic out. beasts. Doctor uh, Strange. Yes. So plenty of stuff to look forward to. Um, or definitely check out some of our archives because there's plenty of horror stuff there. Uh, Conjuring Two. We uh, lights out. Uh, I'm trying to think of just this year alone, but definitely plenty in the Don't archives. Breathe. Don't, Don't breathe. Don't breathe. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, all right. Bye for now. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.